0: If you would, uh, grab your Bibles now and turn to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, and I'm going to have Zach stay up here and uh, read our text for us. So if you would, stand with us as we give attention to God's Word as we read John 1, verses 14 through 18. All right. Let's read. And the Word of the Lord became flesh and dwelt among us. he has made him known. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you again just for this morning. We come to receive from you. We we come with nothing in our hands, nothing to offer you that you need from us. But you have poured out your goodness to us. You have made yourself known. And so as we look into your word this morning, I just ask that you would Uh, reveal it to us. I pray that you would help us to see this text in new and fresh ways, and I pray that through it we would be drawn to just worship you, to love you, and to to marvel at the glory of the coming of the Son. So we commit this time to you, and we ask in the beautiful and glorious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You all have a seat. You know, throughout history there have been many statements that have been made that hold such significance that they kind of echo down through the years. Um, you can think of kind of um, maybe the, the, that statement that's been attributed to Patrick Henry at the, at the start of the Revolutionary War when he stood before the, the Virginia Convention, and he declared what? Give me liberty or give me death. Kind of became the cry of, the, of this revolution. Uh, years later, President Eisenhower, on that uh, tragic day, would, uh, would get up and declare those famous words, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Many others like this. You can think of even the great William Wallace. What did he say? They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. I know he didn't actually say that, but uh, it's just such a good line. You just say, uh, somebody needed to say it in history. But, uh, You know, when it comes to significant statements, I oftentimes try to shy away from superlatives. But what we find in John chapter 14, uh, in John chapter 1 rather, in verse 14, is likely the most or at least one of the most significant statements that could ever be made. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It cannot be overstated how significant this line is. And here in just these few short verses where John closes out his introduction or his prologue, we see here where he testifies to what he and his generation saw and received. And in these short verses, we too are invited to see and receive. And that's going to guide us as we look into this passage. I want us to invite us to see the glory of Christmas, and then I want to invite us to receive the blessing of Christmas. So that's how we'll walk through this. First, I want to invite you to see the glory of Christmas. In verse 14, what does John say? He says, "We have seen his glory." Now, the word that John employs here—that's uh, translated as "see." holds a much fuller sense than just seeing. You know, not all seeing is the same. There is seeing like maybe you saw things as you drove here this morning. But how many of us have, have taken a drive, maybe driven home from work, where once you get there, you almost don't even remember the drive home, right? You just kind of zone out. It's so familiar. You don't. Your eyes may be functioning, may be working, but you're not really seeing. And then there is seeing like you see when you head up to Rocky Mountain National Park. And you, you round that last corner coming into Estes, and the mountains rise before you, and you see, dare I say, behold, the mountains rising up in front of you, right? This is the, the, the type of language that, that John employs here. It holds the idea of spectating or observing with attention. He says, they have, they have, they have beheld His glory. question is, how have they come to see His glory? It's because the light of which John has been speaking about has finally arrived. And so he declares in this monumental phrase, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's so much to unpack here. This this phrase is just filled with so many deep concepts. I wanted to almost just just stay here, but we're going to try to work through the whole text here. So let's just pick through it here. He starts with, and he says, the word. He picks, this is the the term that he first introduced back in verse 1, right? And due to our familiarity with the passage, we may simply just kind of automatically interpret it. But up to this point, the the true identity of this word has not been revealed. But John is very intentional with his language, and Aaron, a couple weeks, helpfully showed us what John is doing by employing this, this, this term logos, this word, He helped us see that that this, uh, for a Greek audience, would be a significant term, that they would would kind of attach to certain ideas. It represented this kind of impersonal force that kind of stood behind the cosmos, that which brought order into the chaotic world. And so, John here, throughout these number of verses, is slowly revealing to us that he knows not just about this concept of the, the Logos or about its nature, but he actually knows who this is. And so, uh, again, uh, Aaron a couple of weeks ago uh, helped us uh, see and think deeply about the nature and the reality of of, of what John is setting forth when he says that the Word was God and he was with God. And we, we were challenged to kind of just wrestle and receive the incomprehensible reality of the Trinity, But here, John takes this one step further and doesn't just reveal things about the Word, but he invites us to see what the Word has actually done. And what does he say? He says, the Word became flesh. Again, Paul's use of terms is is very intentional and very important. He could have said that the Word became a man and used the word anthropos. He could have used the term... Uh, soma and said that, that the, the word took on a, a body, a human body. But no, he uses the word in the Greek sarx, flesh. And by employing this term, he, he's, he's focusing in on humanity in our mortal physical state. So that this couldn't be confused with, with some idea that maybe Jesus just kind of appeared as a man. There were early Christian heresies that began to kind of teach this, that Jesus wasn't truly physical, but He just appeared to be. It was the the era of of docetism. But the word that that, that John uses is flesh. It refers in its most basic sense to the stuff that covers our bones. It's our, our physical condition. It's our skin that can be cut and scraped, our muscles that can be bruised. Our, our respiratory system that can be overcome with viruses. Anybody been sick lately? I feel like I've been sick off and on for, for weeks. It refers to the, the frailty of the human condition. How our, 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 our bodies break down, they wear out. Things stop working like they used to. We get fat and out of shape, and eventually everything stops working. As amazing as the design of the human body is in this fallen world, it is on a trajectory to wear out and eventually stop working. And John very carefully declares that the preexistent one, the Word who was with God, the one who was God, became this stuff. And if, if in verse 1 he declared the full deity of the Word, here he is revealing the full humanity of the Word. He became physical. For those of the Greek world whose default view was this idea of kind of a dualistic idea of, of kind of the spiritual realm on one, one side and the physical on another, this would have been absurd. What do you mean the, the Word, the, that logos, this, that which stands behind everything, became physical? That's an absurd thought that wouldn't make any sense and it doesn't really. This is what the writer uh, N.D. Wilson says is the blasphemy of the incarnation. And uh, Nate Wilson, in in one of his writings, he tells this this funny story. And He describes how he was mowing his lawn one day, just going about his his everyday business, and he finds a rock in his yard, and he he picks it up, dislodges it, and throws it into the bushes. And in so doing, he reveals an, an ant colony under there, and he begins to ponder these ants as they are scurrying around, as their roof has just been ripped off, and he wonders what he should do. Should he just keep mowing his lawn and let whatever happens to the ants happen, or should he maybe let them live and put the rock back? He says that he went away, and then, and then he comes back later, and, and he, he observes the ants again, and what he sees is astounding. All of a sudden, they have earwigs that they've captured, and they're they're bringing them into the middle of, of the pile, and they're ripping them apart, and so Wilson begins to ponder, huh? And he thinks, do they think that the earwigs did it? (laughs) Or maybe they're offering up these earwigs to the man in the sky, the one who who ripped off their roof as a a sacrifice to him. Maybe they'll get his protection. And he began to just ponder this scene. And as he looked at this pile of ants scurrying around, he began to to think about this question. And he said, what if someone told him that he could save the ants, that he could rescue them, but the only thing he'd have to do is to become an ant, to enter into their world, to walk amongst them, and then ultimately to allow them to turn against him, to defile him, to ridicule the sacrifice that he has made, and next to the earwigs, be sacrificed. And he began to ponder, would he do that? Would he be willing to do that? And his response is, absolutely not. He says, I have more self-regard than God does. We recognize in that scene the absurdity of, of, of that situation in our own mind of how could we, why would we possibly do that? They're just ants. But John, in essence, is saying this is what God has done in the incarnation, in the coming of the Word made flesh. Wilson goes on to write and say, there is no blasphemy as deep as the blasphemy of Christmas. God is a self-blasphemer. He became biological. He became one of the mud people. Christ is made a baby in the womb of a teenage girl, born in a stable where he has to have his diapers changed. Just let that reality sink in. And if we, if we take time to, to, to truly reflect on the absurdity of Christ coming to us, it should cause us to, to, to truly see the nature and the character of God. In the incarnation, we see God and His character as the one who moves towards those who are hostile towards Him. He he, he moves towards those who are relationally distant. He's one who who seeks to love those who are difficult to love. And as we are called and invited to to reflect God's character, to be His image bearers in the world, what does that ultimately mean for us? Do we realize that we too are drawn and, and should be those who seek to extend relational grace to those who have brought conflict maybe into our relationships? As Jesus entered into this world and into, into relationship amongst us, where we constantly bring, bring, bring difficulty and conflict in a world of trouble, He moved and entered into it with us to rescue us in that state. So a simple question to reflect on is, who might you need to extend favor towards in the same way that God has shown favor towards you? Who in your life is difficult to love, who you want to avoid? who you are currently at odds with, or the picture of the incarnation can offer you hope to restore that relationship, to move forward towards those who may be even hostile towards you? Do we actually see the glory and the majesty of the coming of Jesus? John does not just end there, but he goes on to say, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this this word for dwell is, again, an intentional word by John. It means essentially to set up a tent. We don't have a verbal use of the the word tent. We don't don't say that I'm going tenting. Um, That'd be a little weird, but that's kind of the idea here. Um, So it's the idea of of setting up a tent and and living in it, a semi-permanent dwelling. That's why some have said maybe this could be translated as he tabernacled among us. And the word that John uses harkens back to Old Testament connections I believe he's in intentionally connecting this statement for his Jewish audience to cause them to remember and to go back to the book of Exodus. We don't have time to go there, but in Exodus 25 to 31, there, there's this scene where the, the, in the giving of the law, uh, the, God has just entered into a covenant relationship with Israel. His law has been given to Moses, and as part of those instructions was this lengthy section about how to construct an elaborate tent. It became known as the tabernacle. And in building that, this tabernacle became the place where God would dwell amidst His people. And so John, by, by using this language, saying, saying the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, he is, he is drawing on this Old Testament imagery saying what the tabernacle stood for, what it pointed to as the dwelling place of God has now taken residence here in this man. And this harkens us back all the way to the beginning of the garden in Eden, where man was was intended to dwell in relationship with God, to be in God's presence, but because of man's sin, that was fractured, and there was this separation. And so what we see in the imagery of the tabernacle is this is this, this echo from Eden, where God desires to live with humanity, with his people. It was a, it was a foreshadowing of this. And John here tells us that Christ. As He comes, the Word made flesh, tabernacled among us, the presence of God has become reality once again. And as this reality of the incarnation is then on display, what what does John say? He says, we have seen it. We've seen His glory. What kind of glory? He says, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, John's word, word, uh, word choice of glory is intentional here. He's drawing again back to Exodus. If the first few verses in John's uh, prologue uh, draw us back to Genesis, so much of this section is drawing us all the way back to Exodus. This idea of glory should, should hearken us back to the scene in which Moses went and met with God, and as he came down from the mountain, what happened? His face was shining. Shining. This bizarre scene, he had to wear a cloth over his face to shield the people from the the glory that was emanating from him. Other Jews might make the connection to this, what became later known as the Shekinah, the very glory of God that would come down upon the tabernacle that dwelt over the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. He's saying, we have beheld the glory of God that was displayed in all these different things has now been manifest and we have seen it here in the Word made flesh. And John finishes by adding these virtues uh, here, these attributes, where he says He came full of grace and truth. Now, we've got to unpack this as well, because uh, I, I had never seen this before, but many scholars actually believe that when He says that He came full of grace and truth, that He's not just kind of commending certain attributes to the incarnate Son, but He's actually again drawing us back into Exodus. Exodus specifically Exodus 33 and then Exodus 34, verse 6. I wish we had time to go back there and look at it. But in this scene, we see Moses again. This is after the golden calf incident where the people kind of rebelled in the wilderness, and Moses got angry and broke the tablets. This is after this, where God is kind of reestablishing His covenant with him, and he's up on the mountain. He's going to make new, new tablets. In chapter 33, Moses has just asked God, he says, hey, God, show me your glory Let me see your glory. And what does God say? He says, nobody can see me and live. But he says, I will allow my goodness to pass before you. And before you, I will declare my name to you. And so, this is what Exodus 34 says. In declaring the name of God, he says this. This is what the name of Yahweh is. He says, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and note this, he says, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's how many of our translations put it. But I've convinced studying this is that as John writes in his gospel, that he came full of grace and truth, he is actually drawing an allusion, almost quoting directly from Exodus 34.6, where Yahweh says he's abounding in steadfast love, in covenant love, in gracious love and faithfulness or truthfulness to his own character that, that John is attributing these same things to Jesus, saying, saying Jesus came full of grace and truth. And this is, this is massively significant. A Jewish audience would have picked up on this. They would have been so familiar with that statement because that's quoted more times throughout the, the Bible than any other. And they probably would have been incredibly offended as well. Because what John is doing, he's saying that the nature of Yahweh that was declared to Moses on the mountain is found manifested in the word made flesh. This is, this is incredibly significant in this moment. And for us to actually get this image is, is so helpful. You know, in our day and age, you know, the Christmas season is awesome, it's great. But in many ways, it's kind of become, I don't know, just sentimentalized. You know, our our, our our culture has just added so many things to it that it, that it kind of the center can kind of be pushed to the periphery. And even more so as the as as secular culture tre- seeks to kind of kind of dislodge and strip away all kind of the vestiges of, of Christianity from the reality of Christmas. I think sometimes we can kind of get swept away with that as well. There's so many good traditions and things about Christmas, but sometimes it just becomes kind of, this story that's embedded amidst all these other things. Sure, maybe you have a nativity scene set up in your living room, but probably right next to it, you might have your gingerbread house and your glistening reindeer and maybe that goofy elf on the shelf thing. I don't know if anybody does that. We, I am mean, doing. I don't know who has time for that, setting that thing up every day. Maybe I sound like a Scrooge. I'm not, I don't mean to. I actually love Christmas, but uh But sometimes all these other things can kind of just make the nativity scene just this other kind of sentimental, cute story that we kind of reflect on or read about or display around Christmas time, right alongside all of our cute little movies and elves and everything else. And sometimes it takes words and imagery like John is showing us here, where he is saying that the God of the thunderous mountain, when you look back at Exodus, the scene is not very peaceful, not very quaint. It's actually terrifying. The people don't even want to go up to the mountain. They, say, they say, say, Moses, you go up there. We don't even want to go because it's too terrifying. The holiness of God is, is something that we cannot even approach. We cannot stand before. And what John is saying in these words is that the, the God of the thunderous mountain is now laying in the manger. What do we do when God breaks into our world, when we're confronted with Him in, in all of His holiness, His justice, and His grace and His truth. Do you see it? Will you see it? Will you have eyes not just to casually see it as you go about your day, but will you behold His glory in this Christmas season? From there, John then invites us, secondly, to receive the blessing of Christmas. To receive the blessing of Christmas. He says this, from His fullness. Again, John loves to use these these terms that kind of are are embedded in in the philosophy of the day. This Greek word, pleroma, uh, likely had had, uh, uh, attachments to kind of Greek philosophy as kind of this um, totality of divine power. Think of like kind of Star Wars, the Force idea—that which kind of animates and and empowers kind of everything behind uh, everything that exists. And uh, and John takes I think this philosophical term and he kind of turns it on his head and he says, "You want to see fullness? You want to see where that is? It's in this one. It's in the Word made flesh. From His fullness, we have received, as He says, grace upon grace." Hang with me. We got another phrase we got to kind of unpack a little bit here, this word grace upon grace. Um, it's kind of disputed amongst commentators what it actually means, what the sense is. Um, there's a good sense in which it, could, it means maybe what we all kind of naturally read it as, as kind of uh, a grace in abundance, that Jesus has brought kind of grace after grace, kind of think of a conveyor belt, just kind of continually dishing it out to us, kind of coming out one blessing after another kind of idea. And it could kind of contain that a little bit, but I think John is actually being a little more pointed here. And I think it hinges on the preposition that actually connects these two words, grace and grace. It's not the word that's normally translated as upon, but it's actually a word that has more of a, a little bit of a contrastive idea, uh, meaning in place of, or in exchange for, or instead of. And you say, well, that doesn't help me at all. I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, that just muddies the water. I think the next verse, verse 17, is, is crucial to understanding this because I think he's explaining what he means. When he says this, he says what? The law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Which take note, that's the first time Jesus' name has actually been said in this entire uh, first few verses. Finally there, his, his, his identity is revealed. But here's, here's what I think John is, is getting at. He's saying that we have, in a sense, received grace in place of grace. We've see, received the grace of Christ in place of the grace of the law. Which I think is is massively significant because he is not diminishing the importance or the place of the law. He's not saying it's unnecessary. He's not saying it's unimportant. He's not writing it off. He actually commends the law as a gift of God's grace. God's grace was displayed through the Mosaic covenant. It revealed the righteous and holy character of God to His people. It called us to a standard of, of, of how we should be. It showed us our deficiencies and our inability to keep it and thus our need of a Savior. And all the sacrificial system that was bound up in it was pointing towards something greater to come. But the law could never actually save anyone because we could never keep it perfectly. It's been said that while the law was the revelation of God's grace... Jesus comes to us as the realization of God's grace. You see, it's, it's only in the incarnate Son that God's covenant love and His faithfulness to His character can be perfectly united in Him. This is why Jesus had to come. Like God is, in His character couldn't just sit back and kind of look down at humanity and say, well, they've really kind of goofed things up. And those humans have really gone off the rails. But you know what? They, they seem to be trying. They're, they're taking a shot at it. They're, they're trying to figure things out. So you know what? I guess we could just let bygones be bygones and just kind of look the other way. And, you know, it, it'll all work out in the end. Like God's character and His holiness could not allow Him to do that. But yet also His gracious covenant faithfulness to His promises still had to be upheld. And so only in Jesus does God's faithful love, His His gracious kindness towards fallen humanity, and His faithfulness, His faithfulness to His own character, His truth that defines who He is in His holiness, only in Jesus could those two things actually be upheld together. And only a perfect human, truly God, and truly man could be the effective substitute for you and for me. And in this sense, John says, we have received grace in exchange for an even greater grace. I spent some time uh, with my, my kids at the ocean this, this past summer um, down near Ecuador, and um, we we're out in the water and the kids just love just kind of being in the waves. And as one came after another, you just kind of ride them and, and they just love being out there. But, but ultimately, this one big wave would just come and just engulf you and take you, take you up and almost drag you all the way back in. And this is kind of the sense of this, that as the grace of God has been unfolding throughout the story of redemption and even given through the law, as Jesus comes along, He is full of grace and truth that, that encompasses all of that, that engulfs us all into, in, into His goodness and His love. And this same grace is ultimately offered to us. The question is, will you receive it? John concludes his whole introduction with this final verse where he says this, no one has ever seen God. And you might say, well, didn't we just talk about Moses' Encountering God on the mountain, didn't didn't he see God? And you'd be like, well, maybe, uh, sort of. Uh, Throughout the Bible, we have all these kind of strange encounters between God and man. But always, God's presence is mediated, it's veiled, it's hidden because God declared that no one could actually see him and live. Sinful man cannot stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God. But John says here, the only God the one who is at the Father's side. Again, we have this this, this mind-blowing reality of full divinity and full humanity declared in just a few short verses. We may never fully comprehend it, but we must affirm it. The only God has made Him known. The only way for us to truly know God is through the person of Jesus. That's why Jesus later could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We will never know everything there is to know about God, but we can truly know God as He has been revealed to us through Jesus, through His Word. And so, as we close things down, because we have a kids' program to get to, let me just ask you a couple questions. This Christmas season, will you not just see a nativity scene, but will you behold the Word made flesh? Sometimes this just takes some intentionality in the practical everyday stuff of life. So this week, as you prepare for Christmas, as you try to navigate the the, the stressfulness of the last gift buying, uh, the family gatherings to come, and all of that stuff, will you take time to behold the Word made flesh? Maybe this week, before you sit down and watch another Christmas movie with your family, maybe gather your kids together And carefully read the Christmas story. But this week is a week to celebrate. And I hope we will celebrate, not just because we've made it through the stress of the season, but because the reality has come that unto us a child has been born, unto us a son has been given. And will you receive the blessing of Christmas? Full deity, full humanity, only found in one person. And that person came to offer himself in your place to cover your sins, to bestow upon you grace upon grace. So will you receive it? Maybe your heart has just grown cold towards it. Will you have a renewed vision to see it more fully and through it to worship more deeply in this season? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word, for this text that for me just, just took on so many new meanings, so many new truths revealed in this, and we have, we have not even begun to plumb the depths of these realities, and our minds cannot even begin to comprehend the incomprehensible nature of your coming into this world. But let us this week as your people continue to reflect to think deeply about these things. Let it let it shape us and change us. Let us not be so drawn by just the, the, the cultural narrative around us that, that you get pushed from the center to the periphery, but let us hold you as the flaming center of our worship and our lives. So give us strength and empower us to do this as we seek to follow you. And we love you. We pray in the name of Jesus, the incarnate son and our risen Lord. Amen.